Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 180 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where, I, I mean, I just, the world is going crazy, we're all going crazy, and we're just going to talk about things we love. <laughs> I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. Yes, the ongoing existential crisis of this podcast, yes. where like by the third episode, we were all like, "We're really tired. We're really <laughs> tired, guys." And it's been that way for a hundred and seventy-seven episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're going to talk about movies. Oh my god, what is happening? <laughs> hey, we're closing in on two hundred. Only 20-ish more weeks. (laughs) Amazing. Only 20 more weeks. If we make it that long, who knows? (laughs) I'm not going to put expectations on anything anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So you're just thinking about the next few weeks, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) I I just want to get through today. Yeah. I mean, that's just where I'm at right now. I think that's a legitimate goal. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) How are you doing? I I'm doing just fine other than the fact that I have allergies but that's that is par for the course in New York in whatever this is now we're kind of in fall although we're supposed to be in like the high 60s by the middle of next week so I don't know what's happening (laughs) yeah well the leaves here have started to turn which sometimes just doesn't even happen um but they have so it's looking fall-ish and it's overcast today and apparently that's supposed to burn off, but I think the high today is only like 70, which in California is not bad. So this has been the I'm, weather report from the coasts. I'm I'm going like, <laughs> it's going to be in the mid 60s, really excited about that. And you're like, oh, yeah, the, the high is only 70. <laughs> it's cold. I need a jacket. It's cold. <laughs> I swear to God, people from California come here and they're like, why? Why is it so cold? It's just like, uh-huh. cold? It's 55 in November. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is like, I'm going to run around in short sleeves. No, it's funny because um, I've lived in cold places. Yeah. And, uh, you and know. You have no stamina anymore. <laughs> oh, no, because the human body is not meant to live that cold. It's just not. And that's why it's much easier to acclimate to warmer weather than cold weather. <laughs> but I remember when I would come home, like, during the holidays from school to visit my family. And it'd be 60 degrees at night. And they'd be blasting the heater. And I'm like, no, open up the windows. It's so nice. <laughs> Because, you know, when I left, it'd be like 12 degrees. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah. And then I moved back home where I belong. And I cannot deal when it's 12 degrees. <laughs> anyway. Um, speaking of people who can't deal with things. 
So this is not the bulk of our conversation today, but we're going to chat a little bit about Eternals. Uh, no, more specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about the big baby whiners that are whining about Eternals and are celebrating gleefully that it is the first MCU film to get a rotten score. They are saying that it is worse than Thor The Dark World or Iron Man 2 or Avengers Age of Ultron. Come the fuck on, people. No, 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 no. Knock it off. Stop it. Anyway, um, Lauren, you have not seen Eternals yet. No. <laughs> so from your perspective as someone who hasn't even seen the film, what do you make of the conversation? I, well, I mean, I think that this, this conversation has, this conversation started way back when like this film was announced and when particularly when Chloe Zhao's involvement was announced. And, and it's, it was the weirdest kind of backlash because you would almost expect to be like, oh, this really, you know, popular indie director, she won an Oscar last year, you know, all of this is like, this is a good thing, right? She's, she's making bank, she's making money. She's, you know, being pulled into this franchise where she's going to get to bring, you know, her perspective and her, um, her abilities to this, you know, major franchise. And instead people were like, this is the end of everything. And it was this very bizarre degree of resentment um, and, and there was resentment being directed towards Chloe Zhao, there was resentment towards, and I, I understand the resentment of Marvel, I do, because Marvel and Marvel and DC are so dominant. Um, and so I do kind of get that feeling of like, oh no, another, you know, indie filmmaker who's going off and doing a, a Marvel movie. But the, the anger and the vitriol that has kind of coalesced around this film has been really bizarre. And, that's what has bothered me increasingly. And the more that people have talked about Eternals and particularly as reviews began to come out and it became clear that this was a very mixed bag, right? There were some people who obviously love this movie, some people who hate it. And the thing that I found weird is, is that so much of the, the hatred is gleeful. The hatred is like this, we told you so kind of attitude. And it's, there, there's this enjoyment of the fact that, oh, it's rotten. Oh, it's, it's not good. Oh, you know, we, we're so glad that this is suffering. And, and then of course, and, and of course the conversation got going about like, okay, well, why are critics having such an intense reaction to this? And one of the things a number of people proposed was that, well, you've got a female filmmaker, you've got a woman of color and you've got a very diverse cast. Um, and, you know, people have talked about the fact that there is sex in a Marvel movie, oh my God, <clears throat> um, that there's like LGBTQ content, that there's actually, you know, all of this stuff that we haven't seen very much of in Marvel, although there, you know, people tend to forget that um, in the first Iron Man there is sex. Uh, and, and so you've got all of these really bizarre resentments and anger and, and conflict going on and one of the things that's bothering me a lot is that a lot of people are just going like, oh, well, this is, um, you know, this isn't about the gender of the filmmaker. This isn't about the, um, this isn't about race or gender or sexuality or anything like that. This is just about the, the quality of the film. It's like, no, bullshit. We know, we know that female filmmakers are subjected to greater scrutiny than, um, than male ones. We know that particularly women of color 
get way more scrutiny from critics. I'm not even talking about from fans. I'm talking about people that are accredited on Rotten Tomatoes, people that call themselves film critics and that go to screenings, that these are, these are the people that are reacting to this. And so, so much of like legitimate criticism is getting lost because there's just been this binary that's been created by the critical community. Right? I don't think this is Marvel's fault or Zhao's fault or anything like that. This is the critical community has just decided to make this an incredibly divisive film and then claim like, oh no, this is just about quality. It's like, no, it's, it can't just be about quality. You can't ignore race and gender and sexuality and, and just say like, oh, that doesn't have any bearing on the way that people are reacting to this film. I saw someone the other day, because um, my friend Clayton, he was talking about how there's just automatically a different level of scrutiny placed on a film when there's a female director and um and in the marvel universe that has certainly been true i mean you had anna Bowden co-directed captain marvel and then of course you had all the the fallout from some very benign comments that brie larson made that a bunch of dudes decided to get really pissed about which uh, didn't affect that movie in the way that they wanted it to, but kind of a little bit did. But it certainly set up a different level of expectation when you had a female co-director, the first one. And then, um, anyway, but so somebody commented, oh, well, there was a female-directed Marvel movie that came out earlier this year that was fresh. And it's like, okay, are we really going to try to pretend that there weren't a whole lot of eyes on her waiting for that movie to fail, waiting for Black Widow to be, you know, a terrible disaster. They were expecting it. And then it turned out to be better than they thought. And, and but still very much felt like, a, you know, in a lot of ways felt like a standard Marvel movie. And it was about a character that everyone loved that everyone had been wanting to see get her own movie for a long time. With Eternals, going into just what the critics are saying about it, it's been so just like, it's just been so stupid because it's like you have some people complaining that it's not Chloe Zhao enough, doesn't have enough of her, like what makes her, you know, the director that she is. And then you have other people complaining it's too much of her and not enough Marvel. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> which one is it? You know? And then you have people complaining because they spend too much time or the whole movie is about these like D-list Marvel characters that no one's ever heard of. And why are they making a movie about them? And then you have other people complaining that they spend too much time explaining who these characters are. And it's just like, I people, <laughs> I just, I, Chloe Zhao, like even if, even if people are going to lie to themselves and pretend that they went into this really looking forward to it, this movie was, it, I didn't see it before, like, I didn't realize this until the the comments and, and complaints and harshness started to come out, but what I'm realizing now is that this movie was never going to be quote-unquote successful in the eyes of a lot of people. They were rooting for yeah. this to be a disaster so that it could prove whatever point to themselves they wanted to prove. Yeah, and there there is such a weird mix. I think there's a lot going on and it's difficult to parse out. You know, so you can't really say, well, this is because 
of Chloe Zhao specifically, or this is because of a female filmmaker generally, right? right? There's a lot of stuff that has gone into this. And that's that's one of the problems. So before the film even came out, there was so much riding on it for so many different people and so many different ways that there was no way it was going to be a non-loaded conversation. Like, and, and that's that's one of the problems. And this is something that I, I've mentioned a couple of times on Twitter. There's positive or negative, you almost can't have a legitimate reaction to this film. Yeah. Because, because there's so much other, as a critic, right? You know, mm -hmm. not necessarily as a fan, but as a critic. Um, because there's so much other stuff that has kind of been piled onto it. And, and yeah, and like I said, I haven't seen the goddamn movie, <laughs> right? So I don't know. I could love it. I could hate it. I, I have a feeling that I'm going to be somewhere in between, that I'm going to kind of like a lot of things about it and probably not like some other things. And that's usually where I am with Marvel, to be totally honest. Um, but it, it's all, of, I think that one of the things that's getting me right now is that all of these people pretending that gender doesn't matter and that yeah. race doesn't matter and that you know and so so some of the things said well black widow did fine black widow was was rated rated highly so was birds of prey it's just like oh my fucking god do you want to hear my stories about the men some of whom were our actual rotten tomatoes accredited critics who came at me over birds of prey mm -hmm. who insisted that it was a failure Right, who insisted all kinds of things, who insisted, by the way, that a little Asian girl didn't represent them, elderly men, appropriately. Right. Right. All of this shit. And it's like, so are we actually going to rewrite the entire history of female directed franchise films? <laughs> And pretend that, you know, they were never subjected, you know, so someone like Brie Larson or, um, or, or like say Kathy Yan, that they were never subjected to all kinds of misogynist bullshit. Like, no, we're not going to start rewriting that. We're not going to make the bros feel better about themselves. We're not going to start pretending that because they have high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, that there was absolutely no reaction to these. Mm -hmm. That's like that. That's not a game that we're going to play. And it seems to be a game that a lot of people, men and women, I'm not saying that this is solely, you know, white men, although, again, a lot of it does seem to be coming from that quadrant. Um, but we're not going to start pretending that this is uh, that this has just been non problematic throughout and that therefore the reaction to Eternals has nothing to do with race or gender or anything else. This this has plenty to do with race or gender. Yeah. You know, it's really weird. Like, I think one of the strangest things to me is that when when I watched it, because I got to see it at a press screening like two weeks ago, and um, when it was over, I was just like, wow, I really liked this. Like, and I mean, I'm I've said it, you know, I'm an easy mark when it comes to Marvel. I'm I'm much more easy on that franchise than you are. Because I just have fun with them, you know? And even Thor the Dark World, I like. I don't think that's the worst Marvel movie. Um, but <laughs> it's Avengers Age full time, for sure. But um, but I just, you know, I, I'm pretty easy, easily sold on these. But I really liked Eternals in a different way than I've liked Iron Man or, you know, Thor or whatever. And I thought... And I even said to, I was actually at the screening with Kristen and, and uh, Kimberly, actually. Um, but I, I was 
saying to Kristen on the way out, I was just like, you know, I think that this is going to be a really tough sell for audiences. I think this is one that critics will appreciate a lot more than than just the average film goer does because there's so much happening. It's so dense and it's such a different type of movie. And to look at the score and not just the critic score, but the audience score and realize, wow, it's totally flipped from what I thought was going to happen is so strange. <laughs> The the whole reaction to this has been very weird, and and I admit, it I makes it feel more calculated, honestly. Yeah, I, I I didn't expect it to to be on like like you. I did not expect this to be the film because you kind of feel like oh, critics should love this because because Zhao really is like she's been a critical darling for a while, mm-hmm. um, you know, really since the writer and and with good reason, you know, she's yeah. she is a great filmmaker, and I honestly, if this was directed by like the Russos or something like that. I would not care to see this movie. I'm primarily <laughs> interested in this film because Zhao is bringing her her perspective to it. Um, but yeah, so you you almost get the sense of like, well, what what's happening here? Something else is happening that doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the film. And that's where it begins to get troubling. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to say, I think that someone on, on Twitter actually put this in, in a better way than I even did. And I wrote like a thread about it. And she was like, here, here's, here's, yeah, absolutely. Here's this. She wrote like one tweet. I was like, that's exactly what I was trying to say the entire time. But um, so this is Adriana at EAD times BB. Uh, I mean, it's just flat out fallacious logic. It's the, I have a black friend, so I can't be racist argument applied to film criticism. So this isn't talking about, um, um, the you know because critics rated this film of that featured women or that featured black people or that featured you know non-white people um they because they rated this high on rotten tomatoes therefore the eternals rating must be something completely different uh it must not have anything to do with race and and she's absolutely right it's it's like yeah you can't like cite portrait of a lady on fire or moonlight and then say well we liked those movies ergo it cannot possibly be about gender or race when it comes to Eternals. It's like, no, that's not how anything works. That's not how criticism works, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm amazed by this. Uh, and at the same time, I'm like, yes, this, this makes sense. And a lot of it I think is, um, is like the kind of hegemonic, uh, the hegemonic, the domination of of whiteness and of maleness in particular, and I, I or patriarchy. I think that that's maybe white male patriarchy, and um, I think that's a better way to put it because I don't want to say that you know all male critics are saying this and all female critics are saying that. I've gotten into trouble <laughs> saying that before, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and and that's not what I mean at all. But there is definitely there there's a dominant narrative, and it's a mainstream narrative. It's a patriarchal narrative. Um, and it's a it's a white supremacist narrative ultimately. Yes. Uh, that I think in some ways a number of film critics are seeing that slowly ebb away, right? And it, there's almost the sense of reinforcing that, right? Well, it's not really about sexism. It's not really about racism. It can't possibly have anything to do with those at all, right? Um, and that there's that kind of trying to regain that narrative that it's really just about merit. And we know that it's not about merit. We've been talking about this for years now. We have to 
stop believing that this that critics are not bringing biases to their criticism because they simply are all of us are and and particularly when you're talking about this dominant narrative um you, you can't really escape from that yeah exactly thank you uh, i hope that made sense I was it, did. Like, it did let it me try to explain sense. yeah no it <laughs> made I perfect mean. sense I, I appreciate your perspective on that so anyway the point is that well my i think my thing is what i've what i've really noticed especially in light of people trying to say well but this one worked even if that other one didn't one of the problems is that they're constantly moving the goalposts you know it's a female director in a franchise film and sometimes they will accept it and sometimes they won't and the reasons why yeah. I always shift and it's it's something that sorry uh it's something that really needs to uh just stop <laughs> like let's just yeah. look at each movie for what it is and we really do need to come to a place where female directors um people of color etc uh are allowed to make mediocre films are allowed to yeah. make bad films and for that not to be like and for there not to be this pile on of it because i can't tell you how many bad films i have seen made by very high profile white men Right. I think Recently. that's the most maddening thing. Yeah. But I think that's the most maddening thing about this is like, okay, you want to talk about objective measure? Objectively, the the construction of this film is so much better than half of what I've seen this year. Like, it's just <laughs> like, no, you can't, you can't critique art as an objective measure, but to sit there and say that this movie is bad compared to so many other things it's like no i'm sorry i'm sorry i just i don't understand what has to go on in your brain to say that this is a bad movie or even a mediocre one it's really ambitious it's you know and it's really well thought out and the craft of it i just I, i'm just i'm so frustrated <laughs> it's it's very frustrating but that but that's what i'm saying we have to we have to reach a point where directors like Chloe Zhao can yeah. take a swing at something and miss. Yeah. Right? And I'm not necessarily saying that Eternals is a miss, but they have to be allowed to do that. Right. And for that not to be something that is like responded to with glee or joy or vitriol, right? That's the thing that's because, so disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Because you see, you see people, you see directors like bring up one of the greatest living filmmakers people directors like martin scorsese scorsese's made bad movies guys he has like he's taken swings and he's missed and that has been okay right there's yeah <clears throat> that doesn't negate the other things that he's managed to do that doesn't negate him as a great filmmaker he's failed sometimes and he's come back and he's made better films and that's okay and we have to extend that same right to people that aren't Martin Scorsese and that aren't for that matter, Denis Villeneuve or Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino, all of whom have made bad movies. That's the thing. And, and we've talked about this before, but people kind of, when people make those directors, their identity and their personality, they cannot accept a world or handle the idea that those filmmakers have made a bad movie. So they, twist themselves in pretzels trying to convince you know everyone that like no this is good actually and it's like well no it's not <laughs> i 
I still I still dread the day that Taika makes a movie I don't like. <laughs> I know it's well, going to happen. Yeah, and if he keeps on making movies, you know, unless he just stops now, basically. Yeah, um, which please it, don't, because I love him. But <laughs> Yeah, but if he keeps on making movies, there will probably be a movie that, and it might not necessarily be a bad movie. It might just not be a good one, right? Yeah. Or or not be one that speaks to you or be a mediocre film. And, exactly. and again, that's okay. Filmmakers should be allowed to do that. And it shouldn't be the end of their careers. And it certainly shouldn't be the reason for people to suddenly start attacking them. Right. Um, and, and yes, we see this a lot more with people that are not white men, period. Yep, exactly. <sighs> yeah. So let's talk about a white man we love. <laughs> <laughs> Who so often represents many of the things that we hate about white men. It's and so yet, true. <laughs> yet does so wonderfully and interestingly. It makes it very compelling. <laughs> oh, man. He's great, isn't he? He is. So this week we are talking about Robert Mitchum, who was born Robert Charles Derman Mitchum on August 6, 1917. And, um, yeah, he was an actor and he did so many things. Like when I was scrolling through his filmography, I was like, this is a lot of movies. <laughs> this is many, many <laughs> movies. Anyway. Um, yeah. So we're going to talk about Robert Mitchum today and we're going to talk about why we love him. So Lauren, why don't you start with well, just I, the basics? I, I will start by saying that for a very long time, I did not love Robert Mitchum. Oh. Um, I, I actually found him quite off-putting and, um, and some of this, I think is because of the different films that I'd actually seen him. And I think the first film I ever saw of his was the night of the hunter, mm-hmm. um, which is a great film, but he is not a likable character in that movie. <laughs> nope. And so I always had this sense of just like, and I, I think that some of it is also about his physicality. He's a very big guy, right? He's very broad and sort of imposing. And he uses that physicality in, in most of his films um, in different ways too. You know, when he's playing a villain, he, he has a kind of a different physicality than when he's playing a hero or an anti-hero. But um, so I think, and I think because of that, there was, there was the sense that I had that he was kind of representative of a very sort of reactionary American masculinity that I found very, unlikable right i i preferred people like per- like uh, carrie grant yeah. um but actually more recently like in the past couple of years i've started watching more of mitchum's films and realizing that underneath that particularly again particularly when he's playing heroes um or or even anti-heroes is there's a gentleness i think to his character to some of his characterizations and a kind of not necessarily queering of those characters, but sort of almost mocking some of that masculinity that he represents. Um, that he's not, you know, he's sort of this big swaggering guy who is like, ah, oh, yes, I am a manly man. But he also is very capable in a lot of films of being tender and gentle and of kind of subtly deriding that sort of swaggering masculinity. Um, and I like that about him now. He's, he's a really interesting screen presence. Yeah. The first movie that I ever like knowingly saw him in, cause I, I had seen some stuff that he's in, but I didn't know who he was until after. Um, so the first one for me was Cape Fear from 1962 Oof. and <laughs> yeah, 
So I spent many years being terrified of Robert Mitchum and just assuming that he always was just like this really scary dude. And of course, over the years, I've seen other movies that he's been in and I've realized like, no, he's not. He's just, but when he is playing the scary dude, he's really good at it. He really is. And I, I just rewatched Cape Fear, as anyone who follows me on Twitter will know, because I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so freaked <laughs> out right now. And, and I'd forgotten so much about that movie. I'd, I'd seen it before, but I realized in rewatching, I was like, I have forgotten many of these things. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's a disturbing film. And, but Mitchum is he's so compelling. And, and, and particularly in that film, he's so smug. Like mm-hmm. he knows, and 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 that's part of the character. He's walking this line, right? And he knows that he's walking that line, and he's spent, you know, eight years of his life studying how to walk it, and and figuring out how far he can go without actually being arrested, without actually being on the wrong side of the law. And he's so frightening and so sinister, yeah. Um, throughout the entire film, and. And it's funny because in watching it, like, you know, there, there's so much that isn't said <laughs> um, and not shown. Like, you know that he's abusive. You know that he's a rapist, right? But the word rape is never really spoken. I, I think that um, maybe spoken once, but it's never actually in reference to him. Uh, you know that he's violent. You know that he, he violently mistreats women. But it's always just like, well, you know, being attacked or the things that he did, you know, all of these things that like are euphemisms, obviously, but make it so much more frightening because you don't see what he's done. You don't act, you just kind of see the aftermath of it and the unwillingness of everybody to even put a name to it or to talk about it openly. Yeah. Um. So, well, for anybody who hasn't seen either version of it, it's basically he plays this guy who's just gotten out of prison and he goes after the lawyer um, and the lawyer's family. And now I'm trying to remember, was it his lawyer or the prosecutor? He, um, the, the backstory is that the, the character played by Gregory Peck is a lawyer, but was actually a witness to him attacking a young woman. Oh, okay. Um, and so spoke against him on the stand. So okay. it's so yeah, he's not he I always not, I always assumed you know. that he was the prosecuting attorney. Um, but it wasn't. He was actually the witness to the witness for the prosecution. So he was the one that that literally his testimony put Max Cady, uh who's the character that Robert Mitchum plays in jail. Okay. Because I think in the remake, um, which is uh Nick Nolte plays the lawyer and I'm pretty sure Nolte was his lawyer and had been like the public defender and he blamed his lawyer for putting him away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a difference, but um, anyway, uh, so I, I watched the, the original Cape Fear because I had seen the remake and I was really curious how it was, you know, different. I was in high school when the remake came out and, um, the Scorsese film and so I wanted to go back and see you know see the original see what was different because like Mitchum and Peck and a couple other people from the original film were in the remake they had little cameos and stuff it was kind of cool but um anyway I 
so the 91 film is is terrifying it's really scary it's very intense but in much different ways than the 62 and i i remember when i watched it i was just like why did they remake this this is so perfect i love this movie it's it's because it's in black and white because it is doesn't show as much graphic detail uh as the scorsese film does it in some ways to me was more terrifying than than the updated version because so much of it like we've talked about before so much of what you know what happens is implied and then you start forming pictures in your head of what's going on and that's so much scarier than anything that a filmmaker is going to show you well and and a lot of it is actually very much in keeping with the perspective of the characters so like greg peck and his wife and his daughter right mm-hmm. none of them are actually like like peck witnessed the attempted rape of this of this woman and then and he stops it right but that's but other than that it's really just what is what is being told about katie what katie himself says um that we know what kind of a person he is so so much of it is kind of putting the viewer very much in the in the perspective of the characters who are essentially having to imagine what he would do and what he has done and the crimes that he that he is threatening to commit right and and that again is, is it's that vagueness it's that sort of shadowiness of like so you know the so the there's a sequence um where we know that that katie attacks this young woman he he picks up at a bar right Mm -hmm. and and he does it and the aftermath is like her being interviewed by the police her being interviewed by um the private detective that has been following katie uh who's, who's hired by the greg peck character and the entire time she's just refusing to talk and she's got she's you know got a bruise on her face she's obviously been hurt but she won't say what it is he did and and so and this entire this entire sequence like and her performance is really spectacular um the entire sequence you're going like even if she were to say it it would make it less terrifying um but it is so whatever he, it was that he did it was so bad that she cannot bring herself to speak the words mm-hmm. yeah and that's what that's what gives that scene its power and it also kind of highlights this undercurrent of paranoia of like if he is capable of that whatever that is what more can he be capable of yeah well and i i, I want to say i i don't dislike the the scorsese film I do. It's really good. Um, Juliette Lewis is fantastic in that. It's very early film for her. It was kind of like what broke her out as a star. Um, Jessica Lange is great. Uh, Nick Nolte is really good. Robert De Niro is really good. Terrifying. Robert De Niro is terrifying. In fact, I think that might have been the first real movie I saw him in, too. And so I thought he was really <laughs> just a scary dude. <laughs> Um, and it definitely has some of those elements of the original film where uh, there is a lot that is implied and, and it's much more like just the fact that he's there and that he's around is really creepy. Like there's a scene where they they leave, like the family decides to get away and um, basically kind of go into hiding. And so they're driving, it's like a rainstorm and they i think they stop for gas or something anyway he's hiding under the car like he's 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 holding on he's just like riding under the car like and you don't 
Like, it just, just knowing that he's there, it's like, oh my gosh, like, they are not safe anywhere, you know. But then there's also some very specific moments of, of really showing how violent and terrible he is. Like, they, they recreate the scene where he takes that girl home and, but they show some of what he does. And it's really brutal, really graphic, really awful. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it I guess it, it, uh, tells more than the original film does, but, um, but it doesn't take anything away from the original, you know, like the, the, the Robert Mitchum version is so good. They're, they're just, even though they're very similar films, they're, they do enough things differently that you can watch them as two completely different stories in some ways. So it's kind of cool that way. Well, and, and go, going back to just Mitchum himself, it, I mean, this it is a great film generally, but Mitchum himself, I think, is, he's a great contrast to someone like Peck. Yeah. Because at that point, Peck is like, he's very Mr. America, right? He's this very straight shooting, you know, he's tall and thin and very like, you know, he believes in truth and justice in the American way kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And Mitchum is just basically the antithesis of all of that. He's big and brutal and imposing and frightening. Um, and he doesn't believe in anything. You know, he, he believes in using the law to his own advantage. Um, and, and he points out numerous times, it's just like, well, I'm not doing anything. You know, you can't, and they, and so much of the film is, is very much about that. It's about the fact that you can't arrest, you know, they say a couple of times, you can't arrest a guy for what you think he might be thinking. Right. Right. And you shouldn't be able to either. Um, but you Which know. Which is a conversation we're still having today. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. You can't arrest a man for, you know, for, for walking around a pier, right? You can't just say like, oh, he's threatening me. Um, and so part of that is is also him driving the Greg Peck character into kind of the abyss along with him of, mm -hmm. of kind of being like, it isn't just I want to hurt the people around you, but I want to turn you into me, basically. I want to turn you into an animal. Um, and there's a lot of reference throughout to Mitchum as an animal, as a beast. Uh, there's even some talk just like, well, men like that should just be shot. Um, and... And you kind of are like, I mean, yeah, maybe, <laughs> no, but also no, because we live in a civilized society. Uh, we live in a society. We live in a society. But but it is that that dichotomy, and that, and I don't think that the film ultimately comes to a conclusion about it because you do get Mitchum basically dragging Peck down to the point that they're they're literally crawling through the mud. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and the swamp and the water and fighting it out, you know, very physically. Yeah. So it, it is a great film. So good. Yeah. I need to, I need to rewatch that because it's been a long time. So what's another, well, we talked, we mentioned night of the hunter. Let's talk about that one too. Yeah. We're really talking about his villainous roles. I love night of the hunter. That's like Charles Lawton does Tennessee Williams, basically. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about Night of the Hunter? Well, I, I think again, for for me, it's it's again bringing up the those things that that charm, that quietness, which in his more heroic roles, Mitchum really uses as to kind of bring out a tenderness in his characters. In Night of the Hunter, it's just sinister. 
it's just like, oh yeah, I completely get how this guy could like, you know, seduce people and could really make them believe him. And, and yet at the same time, you're just like, he's so creepy. Mm -hmm. He's so creepy. You know, he's up to no good. Um, but he, he's, he's so charming and fascinating to watch. And you're just like, yep, I absolutely know how you'd be drawn in by this guy. Yeah. What I love about it too is that the kids. Yeah. They, they know. <laughs> like, kids are good judges of character. And he's so, like, I just, um, I was going to say something and now I left. I forgot my point. But anyway, um, yeah, just so it's, it's like, you don't just have him, you know, cozying up to women to get money or, or whatever he needs. But now in this particular story, you've got children involved and they don't trust him. <laughs> they know there's something wrong and yeah. no one wants to listen to him, to them because they're kids. What do they know? And the thing is that kids know, kids know when people are dangerous and bad. Yeah. They, they see through him and yep. they see pretty quickly that, you know, all of that charm and everything can't really, convince them that this is someone not to be frightened of yeah and, because uh, because kids are are just uh what's the word i'm looking for i don't know um but i i guess it's just you know like part of part of what happens as we become adults is that we look for what we want to see kids don't have that and I think that what makes this movie work so well is that it, it really uses that reality um, and to drive the story. And because, you know, we want to see good in people. We want to trust that the charming man who's being so kind is really on the level and that he's really who we want to believe that he is, you know. Yeah, and, and he's he's um, he knows how to get around people. Yeah, and 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 he does, and he's able to get around people, and is able to kind of convince everybody, except for the kids, um, yeah. all the way throughout the film until he meets Lillian Gish. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to spoil. So, if anyone has not seen Night of the Hunter, please, oh my God, go see Night of the Hunter uh, and skip over what I'm about to say because I really want to talk about the part where um Lillian Gish like meets Robert Mitchum and he tries the same thing on her he's charming he's you know just like oh I'm just really worried about these kids you know I mean that they're they're my babies I want to take care of them their mama's dead you know all of this and she takes one look at him she's just like no and she she shoots him <laughs> she shoots him with a shotgun like she's just like no I don't th I don't trust you boy <laughs> like <Yep. laughs> it's so good and and again you're talking about that physicality where you've got Robert Mitchum who is huge little Lillian Gish who is the size of a child herself right and she's a little old lady at this point she's like mm -mm, no <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know it's great um also, I mean, that's I, honestly, I think that she's more who I have become as I've gotten <laughs> older and I've realized that, like, you really can't trust most people. <laughs> Which we should talk about in a minute um, in, in terms of Robert Mitchum. But yeah, if, if Robert Mitchum comes knocking on your door and he's like, well, ma'am, I'm just looking for these two kids. Just like, mm -mm, no, you're not. 
I'm gonna. I don't care. You say you're a preacher. I'm gonna shoot you in the face. <laughs> By the way, Night of the Hunter is available on Hoopla, Criterion, Tubi, and Canopy. So if you have not seen it, you have no excuse. There's lots of ways to watch it for free. And I, I do want to say, you know, talking about failures and giving people chances and things like that. Because this film was a commercial failure. Um, Charles Lawton never directed another film and that is a fucking crime and shame on everybody who like panned this film or or anything and just like I don't know what was wrong with the people back then but this this is truly terrible because it is a great film oh it's so good so so good I didn't realize that that was the end for Charles Lawton it, it was the only film he directed Wow, and I, I mean, didn't he, realize that. He, act, he acted, obviously. He kept on acting and everything. Right, but, but I didn't realize that this was his only direct... Huh, I didn't... Yeah. Yeah, he, he and he took the, the failure personally, and basically it was just like, he never made another film after that. And I was like, how dare you? How dare you, people? Man, people suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a great film. Watch it if you haven't, because, yeah, it's good. Um, let's see. What are some others? Some other Robert Mitchum works. Well, I mean, this is film noir, and actually, both of the films that we've talked about can be categorized as film noir. Definitely. Um, but I mean, more often than not, Mitchum was actually playing the hero or the anti-hero, at least in in most of the noirs that he made. So films like um. Uh, Out of the Past, The Big Steel, uh, Where Danger Lives, The Racket, um, Angel Face, all of those, he's he is at least, he's at least the hero, if not, you know, like in noir, it's kind of like, are there any real heroes in film noir? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but but so Mitchum was, us- was actually usually playing the, the good guy as far as the noir goes. Yeah. I, um, there's a Robert Mitchum collection on Criterion Channel, and when we were talking about doing this episode, I was like, cool, I'm going to watch all these movies, and then I had a really crazy week, so I only got to, um, his kind of woman, and I fell asleep at the very end, so I don't know how it ends, but, um, (laughs) yeah, so it's like, some of the films, I mean, there's a bunch on there. And so some of the ones I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to see that were films like, um, out of the past. So, um, yeah, uh, out of the past is a great film and it's, um, yeah, I think it's kind of his, when people talk about Robert Mitchum film noirs, that's like one of the major ones that get, that gets mentioned. Um, and, and again, it's one of those, you know, I, I've honestly, I own the Blu-ray. I have seen it multiple times. I still don't remember all of the twists and turns that that movie takes. Um, but it's, it's very much, you know, kind of a couple on the run. Most of it is actually a flashback um, where he's kind of sh- explaining what drove him <laughs> um, and who he's hiding out from. And, uh, and, oh, and, you know, there's, there's a femme fatale naturally uh that we kind of question is she a fatal or is she not a fatal uh throughout most of the film and and then it gets it gets revealed but it's it's a really good film and again it's that it's that kind of rain drenched rain drenched but also sun drenched um 
film with you know trench coats and fedoras and uh and lots of betrayal and money and kirk douglas is the villain so you know that's fun (laughs) (laughs) well that tracks too (laughs) awesome um Uh, but let's i want to talk about his kind of woman yeah let's do um because you've seen most of it now i have Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that one's interesting because it does kind of start out as this film noir, right? It's very sort of, and it's actually fairly straightforward in terms of its noir plotting. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to open up the things to be certain I get all of the plot points right. So, <laughs> so basically, Mitchum is um, is a, a gambler, but he takes a job that he's essentially like he has to leave the country and go to a Mexican resort mm-hmm. where he's going to receive further instructions. And if he does this and he takes this job, he will get $50,000. Yeah. Right? And so of course he's skeptical about it because who wouldn't be just like, Hey, if you, if you go to Mexico, I'm going to give you $50,000. It's like, why? <laughs> right. Um, but he does it. And and he's and in in the process he actually meets um, Lenore played by another noir staple Jane Russell, um, and finds out that she's actually the girlfriend of this famous actor Mark Cardigan played by <laughs> Vincent Price, and so most of the action actually takes place at this Mexican resort where um, where Milner who's the Robert Mitchum character is kind of trying to figure out what he's supposed to do he's getting more instructions but it's getting darker and weirder and he's not certain what is supposed to be going on here right and and then (laughs) then my favorite part of the film Vincent Price shows up and just walks away with the movie Mm-hmm. So it turns into almost a parody of film noir. And there is like this, this arch humor, I think, that runs throughout all of it, where you've got these bizarre characters and this weird job that the, that the hero isn't quite certain why he's there. You've got this random woman that he meets, you know, is she involved in this in some way? And, and then you've got Vincent Price, who is just beyond camp. And he's having such a fantastic time. And he kind of joins forces with Milner to figure out what's going on. And it's it's bizarre and hilarious and um, and has one of the weirdest, like, brutal slash funny climaxes of a film I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of my just overall takeaways from it not getting yeah. into the fun like good good meat of it um jane russell sings a song about one of the most boring cities in southern california <laughs> san Bernardino. it's actually san bernardino and i was just like why 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 would anybody sing a song about san bernardino california <laughs> um and also thurston howell is in it too from gilligan's island he plays um, um, the Myron Winton, the, the investment yeah. guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He, he pops like, up suddenly. It's just like, what the yeah. hell? I was just like, it's Thurston Howell. What? 
it, it is, it just has, I don't, and I don't, honestly, I don't know whether it's intentional or if it, if the film just kind of wanders off in its own direction <laughs> or something, but it does have this parodic element to it. It's, it's almost, it's almost a satire. Mm-hmm. And, and actually one of the things I like about it, and I guess that Mitchum hated making this film because the production went on forever. Um, but, I could see that. but one of the things that I like about it is the fact that uh, throughout most of it, Mitchum is just, Mitchum is just like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> um, he's got this kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go along with this because I am really confused. Um, and, and so there's, there's this humor even to his performance that I, I think kind of keeps things moving really nicely and makes, makes a little bit more sense of like the Vincent Price character because Price shows up and is just like, I am just going to camp it up <laughs> and, and I don't know what I'm here for, but it's my movie now. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a scene where he, they're watching his, they're watching a movie of his and he's just like enjoying the crap out of watching himself on screen and he's watching everyone else watch him and he's just like waiting for reactions and it's so funny (laughs) it's just like why is this in a movie about a guy that's like (laughs) it's just it was so funny i'm just like i don't understand what's happening but i'm loving everything about it yeah you you go into it kind of thinking like oh okay this is sort of you know this makes sense it's kind of a standard noir and it's just like what the hell (laughs) Yeah, because it starts off with a gangster yeah. who has been kicked out of the United States and sent back to Italy, but he's trying to, like, and that's, um, uh, what's his face? Raymond Burr. Yes, thank you. Uh, I was like, not Perry Mason, that's not his real name. Um, Raymond Burr, <laughs> who is there, too, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And so he's, I don't remember exactly what he's trying to do or why he's in Mexico, like, why he goes there, and yeah, anyway. Um, and then there's this hurricane and it's like they just throw all these elements at it that are just great Vincent Price's wife shows up and his girlfriend's like wait what (laughs) it's awesome yeah it's it's a very it's a bizarre film but I I recommend it to everybody that I talk to just like have you seen his kind of woman it's on criterion right now Mm -hmm. you have to see it because it it is so much fun and it does it's very unexpected like yes. it it goes places it's just like i was not thinking that this was going to go where it was where it's going but okay you know and and it, it works well enough that i think you just kind of go along with it um yes and the big scene with vincent price at the end is so worth it <laughs> it's so over the top it's, it's just like great. it's it's like if a ham actor just snapped and suddenly believes that he was all of the characters he ever played. Yep. And it's just like, I am the hero now. And he's like giving commentary for what he's doing. It's, it's it, fantastic. It, it really is great. And, uh, and it just pulls you along. It's really entertaining. Yeah. Um, but I, I do have to say that Mitchum actually plays comedy very well. He was in a few comedies. Um, he was in Home for the Holidays, which is a, a Christmas comedy with Robert Mitchum and Janet Lee. <laughs> um, and I haven't seen that one. Or am I crazy? Is it Home for the Holidays or maybe I'm Holiday uh, Affair, sorry. I've seen Holiday Affair, yeah. Sorry, Holiday Affair, yeah. And that's that's Mitchum and Lee. Yeah, that's her. I forgot that was her. Yeah. That one is uh 
Isn't that the movie that he did because uh, they needed to clean up his image because he had been arrested for marijuana? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, that one and uh, Rachel and the Stranger were kind of the, po- the post-marijuana arrest <laughs> uh, films to sort of be like, oh, Robert Mitchum is okay. But but it, actually, you know, Holiday Affair, I think, is... Um, I think actually it's a it's a fun film. It's an entertaining film. It's completely unexpected because you have two actors that you do not associate with this kind of movie. Right. But it works really well and they bring a lot of depth and humor to it that I quite like. I kind of Mitchum didn't make tons of comedies. Um he made another one called The Grass is Greener that was is much later. But he has like a humor to his persona and sort of a it's more satirical or sarcastic but he actually is kind of amusing in those sorts of roles or maybe because it's unexpected yeah yeah i would say that's true but he pulls it off that's the thing like sometimes sometimes you try to put actors in things that are outside of what you're used to seeing them in and it doesn't work because they just can't do it but he can yeah and he's uh I was gonna say anything else you wanted to talk about? Not, not really. I mean, it's it's funny that um, Mitchum really did have a very varied career because the other side of his career is, is his Western persona, um, which always feels like whenever I see Robert Mitchum in a Western, I'm like, it's basically like a noir but in the West <laughs> <laughs> with horses. Like that's really about it. That that he still has that like that same kind of swagger, that same sort of, that anti-hero aspect um, that we associate so much with his his noir uh, roles because he is untrustworthy. Like he's, he's sexy, right? But he's also, you're also just kind of like, he might be the bad guy or he might save your life, one or the other. <laughs> like he might try to kill you or he might like turn out to be, you know, a lawman in disguise. <laughs> yeah. One or the other. So, um, and well, now you have a new theory that he was a vampire. Yes, which makes perfect sense. All right, he is sexy. He's also scary. He's untrustworthy, as we have discussed about vampires. Uh, he wears long coats. Prefers and so like more like bat wings, right? Prefers um, night to day, and like has a certain animal magnetism that you just can't quite codify. So. <laughs> I think Robert Mitchum might have been a vampire. I think that that is a great <laughs> hypothesis. Let's, let's, uh, I don't know how to test it because, yeah, <laughs> I like it. Um, here are some of the films that are on Criterion Channel starring Robert Mitchum. Um, let's see, Night of the Hunter, Dead Man, Out of the Past, um, Cape Fear, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Angel Face, Crossfire, His Kind of Woman, um, The Last Tycoon, um, Thunder Road. There, there's so many. So if you are wanting to see some more of his films, there are lots and lots to see. And yeah, I'm going to be diving into some of those too. His, his two Philip Marlowe films are really interesting. He did Farewell, My Lovely and The Big Sleep. And they're, they're very different from the kind of original 1940s adaptations. Mm. Um, and because I think, 
I'm trying to remember. I think that The Big Sleep is actually set in the 1970s. I want to say that Farewell, My Lovely is, is, was made in the 70s, but it, it's set in, um, in the 40s. Uh, but they're, they're a very different interpretation of Philip Marlowe that I think, you know, you can argue about whether or not it works. He's not my favorite Philip Marlowe, but, um, but they are interesting films. And The Friends of Eddie Coyle is just a, a fantastic neo-noir. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, there you go. That's, that's Robert Mitchum for you. And um, so thanks so much for, for listening to us ramble on about that. Um, we <laughs> did get one listener question, but we're going to hold off on that because it was about Spencer. And so I think we're going to put that on, uh, on hold until you've had the chance to, to see the film. And then we can yeah, talk when, about it. When does Spencer come out? Like, it's actually out. It's get in theaters. It's out? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came out this weekend. Yeah, that was one I didn't get a screening for, so I had to buy my own ticket and go. <laughs> like so. the rest of us plebeians. Yes, exactly. Us regular people. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then I sat in the theater, and it's one where you reserve, you like, you pick a seat, so it's, you know, anyway, so you can see when they're, where other people are sitting in the theater. And this, like, these three people picked the seats directly next to me, even though, like, most of the theater was empty and I'm just like why are you sitting right next to me and then they wouldn't shut up and stop talking and I finally just got up and moved because I was so annoyed <laughs> hey that's the theatrical experience yeah exactly <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. anyway um, yeah that's what you're fighting for Villeneuve for me to sit next to annoying people who talk at the theater and look at their phones so Thank you so much for that. Anyway, um, but yeah, so Connor, thank you for your question. We did get it, and we will answer as soon as Lauren is able to contribute to that conversation. So, yes. Alrighty. So, um, yeah. Well, we really appreciate everyone that listens and that supports us, and we do have some bonus stuff coming. We're going to do another, um, I know we've been talking about it, but we're going to do another screening um like a watch party um pretty soon we should do a noir one so we'll be letting you know um maybe over thanksgiving weekend or something we can do it since some of us won't be very busy but (laughs) (laughs) i don't know anyway we'll figure something out we'll let y'all know um but anyway so uh we want to especially thank our patrons for helping us keep the lights on our patrons are Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you. If you would like to become a patron as well, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen name. And we also have stuff going on our website. I will be covering AFI Fest this week, which starts on Wednesday. So I'll be reviewing some stuff from there. I'm still working on... um, I, I still need to get my last night in Soho review out because I really want to write that. Um, so a few things are coming. Uh, and that is citizendamepod.com. And you can email us if you'd like. We like email. Citizendamepod at gmail.com. And you can find us on the social medias. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at citizendamepod. And on Letterboxd, we're at citizendame. You can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. 
And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you later. Bye. And there's little John. What's wrong, John? Come to me, boy. What's wrong, John? Didn't you hear me, boy? John, when your dad says come, you should mind him. He ain't my dad. No, and he ain't no preacher, neither. Just march yourself yonder to your horse, mister. March, mister. I'm not fooling. All right. But you haven't heard the last of Harry Powell yet. The Lord God Jehovah will guide my hand in vengeance. You devils. You whores of Babylon. I'll be back when it's dark. <laughs>